So for sure, your cleaning fee is going to be one of them, even though that is a cost that you do pass off to the guest, the way that Airbnb pays out the payments. Are you a real estate investor looking to sharpen your skills or a newbie looking to become one? You're in the right place. Welcome to Where Should I Invest? Real Estate Investing in Canada with your host, Sarah Larvey. Hey everybody, Sarah Larby here. Thank you for tuning in again. We've got a great guest coming up. And uh, if you are interested in short-term rentals or cottage rentals or any of that good stuff, Natalie Palmer is joining us today and she is going to be talking about how she set up her Airbnbs, how she's running them, how she's cash flowing them and everything in between. And also I'm adding a new segment to this podcast, which is going to be the one minute tip with Streetwise Mortgages, with Dahlia Barsoom, and there's going to be a different tip of the week. So let's bring in Dahlia before we go into our podcast episode and hear what is important to know for today from a real estate financing and mortgage standpoint. Dahlia, over to you. Hi, I'm Dahlia, founder of Streetwise Mortgages, and today I will share with you a tip on how to get the best value for a property you're looking to refinance. Number one, avoid system appraisals. While system appraisals may be cheaper or free of charge, they can only support the value based on the sold comparables in the area. They do not take into consideration any unique characteristics about your property. Therefore, in my view, it is best to go with an actual appraiser's visit, even if it costs you a little bit more. Number two, if you have renovated or improved the property, Share with the appraiser or your mortgage broker an executive summary that includes the following, before and after pictures, a list of the work done, how much you spent, any permits, and any sold comparables within the past 90 days that your realtor can provide. And finally, number three, working with a mortgage broker will give you better leverage in resolving any value discrepancies with the appraiser versus working directly with the lender. If you're looking to refinance a property or wish to develop a complementary financing roadmap to grow your portfolio, our team at Streetwise Mortgages will help you unlock your possibilities. Email us at info at streetwisemortgages.com. Cheers to your success. Awesome. Thank you, Dahlia. That was great. Great insights. Great tips. And again, you know, it is important to work with a great mortgage broker, especially if you're trying to scale and acquire multiple properties. So on that note, let's bring in Natalie Palmer. Natalie, welcome to the show. How are you? Good. Hi, Sarah. Thanks for having me. I am excited. I've been following you on Instagram for a little while. I'm like, this girl knows what she's talking about. Like she's giving so much content, so much information. I'm like, I've got to reach out and have you on the show so yet you can share with my listeners, my audience, what you've been sharing with, uh, with Instagram and, uh, and potentially some more insights from there. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I'm super excited to be on. Um, yeah, so just a quick intro to your audience and stuff. My name is Natalie Palmer, and I am an Airbnb host. And um, in the last year, I've kind of added on to hosting. I've added on um, consulting with other hosts and uh, teaching courses and just helping onboard brand new hosts to Airbnb. 
Um, I'm actually an Airbnb ambassador. I don't work for Airbnb or anything like that, but I basically help to just facilitate new hosts getting onboarded with the platform. Um, and I now manage eight listings, three of which are my own, um, mine and my family's, and uh, the five others I co-host and manage for other owners. And I am in Southern California, so I know most of your audience is Canadian, but I think a lot of the information like we discussed previously should still be relevant to your audience. Um, hospitality really doesn't change, you know, from place to place. So hopefully it's still, it's still a worthwhile talk, but I'm super excited to connect awesome. with you and thank you again for having me. And that's great. You answered a lot of my questions about where you're, you know, like what you're doing and all that good stuff, but I'm just curious, how did you get started to begin with in the Airbnb short-term rental industry? It was so accidental. It's just crazy to think about. Actually, December was my four-year anniversary of hosting. And how I got started was all the properties that I host are in Big Bear Lake, California, which for anyone unfamiliar, it is the premier ski resort town in Southern California. And we are about two hours outside of LA, OC, San Diego. So uh, my parents had a vacation home there and we grew up using it all the time. But as me and my sister got older, we just weren't going up as often. And specifically the week between Christmas and New Year's, it's so crowded up there that we as a family hated using the place during that time. Um, so I just kind of proposed to my parents like, hey, I think I could be good at managing this. Will you guys let me list it on Airbnb and just see what happens? We only had the intention of listing it for that one week between Christmas and New Year's. And it ended up being so much more work to get it all ready and everything. And then that week was so, the numbers that we saw come in were so shocking to us that my parents were like, okay, don't, don't stop. Like, let's keep going through the end of ski season and see what happens. So we rented it out. We were almost 100% booked through end of March. Um, and then by the time the resorts closed, my parents were fully on board and they were like, you're doing this, you're managing this for us and we wanna invest in another one. So I got really lucky that my parents kind of backed the first couple properties you know, that got me interested in this. Then from there, I started managing for others. And then this year, finally, my husband and I actually bought our own property. So I am only invested myself in one real estate property. Um, but yeah, I'm super fortunate that I kind of even discovered the world of hosting through those opportunities early on. That's very, that's very cool. I mean, you know, I love the short-term rental market. Uh, I started doing some midterm. I think probably half my portfolio of things that I'm holding on to are Airbnb, whether it's short-term, midterm, or, or whatnot. And I can tell you that there's definitely pros and cons to every strategy, but it's definitely been more pro than anything. Um, yeah. And so somebody that's thinking about getting started in this market, doing short-term rentals, like what are some maybe some tips that you can share. I mean, there's, there's gotta be tons, but you know, just from doing this uh, already for a few years in your, in your shoes and, and hosting for yourself, your parents, uh, other people as well, you know, what are some things that they might not think about potentially that they should be aware of? Yeah. So definitely when it comes to short-term rental, you do have to think a lot more of the hospitality side, right? It is a lot easier to do like a long-term rental or even a mid mid stay. So with short-term, I think to really excel and like be at the top of the Airbnb platform or Verbo or booking.com, whatever you use, you know, reviews are important. So you do have to remember to put guests first and kind of think through those things, those issues that guests are going to have. So my biggest tip on that would be 
kind of, uh, it's, it's tough because I don't want to say spend everything on the guest experience because then you're not profitable and that defeats the whole point. But at the same time, you shouldn't be skimping on things either. Definitely, you know, good quality mattresses, nice bedding, things like that. But if you just kind of think through things that your guests are going to pay attention to, little things like put uh, jars of Q-tips and cotton balls in the bathrooms. Like that seems minor and it's not something you think about when you're just doing a house flip or a long-term rental, but you know, it's inexpensive. And I promise you those little details come back tenfold when it comes to a short-term rental. Yeah. It's like those, I think it's like maybe like surprise and delight, right? Those additional exactly. things that people aren't expecting. Like I do coffee on mine. Like I had, you know, I was in the coffee industry when I used to have a job and and so oh, cool. I've had access to coffee and I kind of still have some connections. So we provide coffee, but you know, it's like those little things I think that, that create the good reviews and I'm guessing gives you more eyeballs on the place. And then potentially yeah. some people are going to be looking at these reviews before they book. And if they're good and they've got all of these little, you know, great comments, then yeah. it will likely help, uh, help with, you know, the, the rest of it. So, okay. So let's, let's dive into a few questions. Like I know you sent me some, but I definitely have lots of additional questions. I'm hoping that we can okay. cover. <laughs> Go for it. So in terms of analysis, right, there's tons of markets. I mean, you, it sounds like you're in, in big bear. I think predominantly there's tons of markets. There's some people that are going to be closer to, you know, really good markets. And some people are going to yeah. say, I can find this awesome opportunity four hours away. You know, what are your, what's your take on, should somebody be close enough to drive or far enough that they can hire the right people? And why? I'm, I'm so happy you're asking this. This is actually one of my favorite topics to talk about because I think it's a huge misconception that you have to live close to your short-term rental in order to manage it. Um, actually, in my courses and everything that I teach, I really try to emphasize that setting up the property as if it's a remote listing, even if you do live local to it, is the best strategy you can take on because having the mindset that the place is a few hours away from you is going to equip you so much better to manage it without getting burnt out. So I'll just give you a specific example that I had early in my hosting days. Um, so I live two hours from my properties, so I'm not super far. I can get there in an emergency, but you know, if it's snowing and chains are required and it's peak holiday season, I pretty much can't go. I have to rely on my team up there. So this happened to me, I think it was like my fourth, fourth guest ever. They, they contacted me to say that the smoke alarm was beeping. And I realized that we did not have any spare batteries in the place. And I immediately felt so bad, um, but there was really nothing we could do. So I told them um, if they could go out and buy new batteries for the smoke alarm, we would reimburse them. And I think I sent them another like 25 bucks or something for the inconvenience. Luckily, they were super nice about it. But the next time that I went up, we brought up all these spare batteries and everything to be like, okay, this is not going to happen again, that the guest is responsible for going out and buying batteries. Then after thinking about it a little more, I realized that I still don't like that solution because it's not my guest's job to have to change batteries when they're on vacation. So we ended up switching out all of the smoke alarms and carbon monoxide detectors to those 10 year ones that have no batteries. If you haven't heard of those, they are great. A little pricey. Yeah, we have those so, too. <laughs> yeah, so worth okay. it that you don't have to worry about it. They're never going to beep on you or bug your guests or anything. So it was a lot to have to go through and replace it in all the listings, but it was so worth it. Um, and, and that's kind of what I try to emphasize is you can definitely self-manage it. I think as long as you have really like 
a reliable cleaning team, get a backup cleaner as well, a reliable handyman and a backup handyman. Your cleaner will be the one who kind of reports damages to you and tells you when inventory is low and when things need to be restocked. But having the mindset that the place is several hours away, it just equips you so much better to set up those things to run without you. I think back and if it hadn't been that we were a few hours away when that whole smoke alarm thing had happened and this was just a guest house in my backyard, I would have probably just ran over there myself and changed the batteries and never changed anything else. And I would be on call for the last four years anytime something like that came up. So yeah, it's it's such a misconception that you can't manage the place from afar. I truly believe it's actually easier. And even if you do end up hosting something locally, treat it like it is a few hours away because it will definitely just set you up to make those things run and function without you. You won't get burnt out. It'll be so much easier in the long run. And now we're going to take a quick break to hear from one of our sponsors. Hey guys, I just want to take a quick moment here and pause the podcast to introduce you to one of my favorite contractors, John from Blackjack Contracting Inc. And he has been serving the Niagara, Hamilton and Brantford areas for the past three years and has become the area's legal basement suite renovation specialist. He works with many investors that I know and some newer investors, some more experienced investors, and he converts single family homes into multiple units, as well as my favorite strategy, the Burr strategy. So he's well-versed in those as well to make sure that we can achieve the maximum value of the property and the maximum ARV. He has also completed over 100 units from Brantford to Niagara Falls, and everywhere in between as well. They do everything from permitting to the design to the final cleaning before listing our rentals for rent or for sale. And he's also a fully licensed electrical contractor. He's certified with ESA and he will take jobs of all sizes. So no job is too big. He's done a complete guts really from the ground up. So super impressed with his work and what he's been doing for fellow investors that I know as well. So if you wanted to reach out, his website is blackjack contractinginc.ca and you can ask him whatever questions you have. You can also reach out to him Instagram, which is at Blackjack Contracting Inc. And like he says, he knows that investing feels like the biggest gamble of our lives. So when you have Blackjack on your side, the house always wins. So guys, 100%, I recommend Blackjack Contracting. I will say that Finding the right contractor is sometimes a hassle and getting a good one that works with investors that understands the numbers is going to be critical in our success, especially when doing the Burr strategy. And now back to the show. Yeah, no, 100%. I'm, I'm a big master of delegation and figuring out who can do something for me. And, and I think that, you know, it's, it's super helpful in, in being able to scale and to grow. You talked about cleaners, backup cleaner, handyman, mm-hmm. backup handyman you know, how does somebody go about finding the right cleaner? So, I mean, you know, there's a, there's a couple that I have that are different, uh, in, in my cottages and I have some midterm rentals, uh, you know, probably a half an hour from where I live. Um, and I actually had to go through two different cleaners, maybe three. And then I ended Pretty up typical. Having- yeah. <laughs> and then I just ended up having my, my cleaner that cleans my house and she doesn't drive because she lives on my street and she's like the best cleaner. Um, and I just Uber her because it's totally worth it. But how does somebody go about finding the right cleaner that's not only going to just clean and just check the box, but like check if there's like things that are broken and missing and like be a little bit proactive, like what are your insights yeah. on that? 
You're definitely thinking like along the right tracks with the questions you're asking regarding cleaners, because what you don't want to do is just hire somebody who is advertised as like a local house cleaner. It is so different to do short term rental cleanings like you already touched on. It's somebody that has to report damages for you. They have to put out, you know, new rolls of toilet paper. They're going to have to resupply and refill your little coffee basket and make sure it looks cute and untouched for each new guest. It's very different than just somebody who comes to, you know, vacuum your house and clean your toilets and sinks and shower every other week. Um, also, they have a very tight window they can work. It's only between, let's say, 11 a.m. and 3 p.m. You might have multiple cleanings in the same day. So can they juggle all of that? Can they be on their toes when it comes to somebody requesting a late checkout or an early check-in? So it's a lot more demanding than just a typical house cleaning role. Um, my best tip for finding a cleaner is truly just go on a local Facebook group of hosts in your area. That is actually how I found my cleaners, backup cleaners, handyman, electrician, plumber, pretty much everyone came from a Facebook recommend, um, Facebook referral. So yeah, if you're not already, join a Facebook group of local hosts in your area. You'll find so many resources there. But additionally, like you said, you may have to go through a few rounds of interviewing people and testing them out. Uh, the cleaning component is the most important and probably the hardest one to deal with in the short-term rental business. Your cleaner is your most valuable asset for sure. Those cleanings are the number one thing people will ding you on on reviews. And again, they're also, if, if you do host from afar, because um, that's where you get the better investment deal or whatever it might be, that is definitely where you're going to need your cleaner to be the one who reports all those things to you. Not just telling you there's damages, but taking pictures of it and helping you document it so you can file a case uh, with Airbnb. So yeah, don't feel discouraged if you have to go through a few rounds. It's worth it to get the right cleaner because they are your 100% your most valuable asset when it comes to short-term rentals. Absolutely. Now, are you doing any like kind of storage lockers or anything like that? Like, I mean, obviously let's, let's think about it. I think most people listening to this are going to be remote, whether it's two hours or yeah. four hours, or if it's, you know, across a, another a, country province yeah. or across another country, you know, what are some of the things that they should set up so that their cleaner has an easier time doing their jobs? Yeah, definitely. You want a locked supply closet, which again, I would do even if you are remote hosting, but yeah, especially in the case where you do happen to be from afar, um, you'll want to do a locked supply closet and just put, I wouldn't do anything with a key on it because your cleaner is going to lose the key and then what? So something with a little padlock and a combo on it or a, a keypad, digital keypad you can type in, but stock it with as much as you possibly can when you first get started. It's a lot of cost upfront, um, you know, but you'll want to get bulk toilet paper, paper towels, extra bed sheets, uh, extra towels, coffee, creamer, everything you can think of, extra cleaning supplies, all of that stuff. And again, it is a big initial cost upfront to get your supply closet fully stocked, but it's just one more thing that's gonna help you in the long run not have to be responsible for restocking it as often, especially if you're not the one that's gonna be going to the property to do it and you might have to pay your cleaner an additional fee to restock things. Every extra time that you have to have her run out and get stuff, that's an additional cost for you. So fill that thing up, up front, do it properly. Um, and there's a lot of options too, where when it comes to restocking supplies, you can either 
pay your cleaner to run out and grab it for you. You could Amazon something to the property when you don't have guests there. Even if you do, most guests are pretty accommodating. They'll pull the shipment in for you and just set it aside. But yeah, having that lock supply closet is so key. Yeah. And, and I like your options too. Cause I mean, I've done both. I've had my cleaners go out to, you know, a grocery store and get some extra, like, you know, like you said, creamer or whatever it is, yeah. or, or sugar or toilet paper, that good stuff. But Amazon is, you know, an awesome thing. And, uh, mm-hmm. and I've, I've used it many times and actually what I've been doing is just Amazoning over to their house and oh, just letting perfect. them know to the what cleaner's it is house. to the cleaner's house. And then on the next mm-hmm. time they go, they'll just bring it with them. So yeah, that's a great option. Cause then you don't have to bother your guests at all. Yeah. That's, that's a good option. So what are your thoughts about hot tubs and saunas, mm-hmm. you know, or, or games room? Yeah. Okay. Good question. So definitely hot tubs right now, I will tell you for that specifically is I believe hot tubs were in 2021, one of the most top searched amenities on Airbnb. A lot of people were filtering out to only see places that had a hot tub. So without a doubt, having a hot tub will get you more income, more gross revenue. I will say that the caveat being you have to kind of weigh the pros and cons of it on your end. If you are several hours away and it's very difficult for you, or there's not a lot of reliable pool services in your area or something, it might not be the best option for you. So again, it's, I, I always get this question when I'm doing like host consultations and stuff is what sort of amenities do increase your nightly rate? You know, almost anything that you add can become a selling point. Like you said, sauna, game room, hot tub, pool, but it's just always worthwhile to make sure that you really do look at the costs. If you're only going to be able to charge $20 more per night, and let's say you're booked I don't know, 10 nights a month, you know, these are low numbers. I would hope it would be higher than that. But if you calculate that the cost of just the maintenance alone and the upfront cost in getting the hot tub is not going to pay you back, then forget it. So make sure that you just kind of run through those numbers before you go invest in all the amenities um, so that you actually know that it's a decent return on your investment. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm actually, we just bought a hot tub, but it's too cold here. So we've got to actually wait until the, the ground thaws so that we can, oh, yeah. but I, I think that's going to, that's going to be a huge help, but it's also the maintenance, like you said, right. Is there a company yeah. to be able to do it nearby yeah. the cost of that, or is your cleaner going to be able to do it, but there's like water mm-hmm. changes along the way. So I feel like that, you know, that's always a, a catch 22. What are some other potential things that you find other than hot tubs that might bring in more occupancy or a higher uh, price per night? Uh, Surprisingly, it's not even necessarily like having better amenities. Um, Basic things, of course, right? Like everybody wants a smart TV where they can log into their streaming services, high-speed Wi-Fi, comfortable beds. Like those things are basics that I think you should have regardless. But uh, right now, it seems like what's really just helping people get a higher... um, higher nightly rate and occupancy um, would be things like it's, it's pretty subjective, but like just a nicer interior design. I'm seeing that people, I can tell you this. So from the properties that I manage, all eight of them are in the exact same condo complex. They all have the same layout, same number of bedrooms and bathrooms. So same location, same everything. Truly the only difference is some of the owners put more into the design of the place and some cheaped out on some things. And I can see just having 
insight into those eight identical properties where the only difference really is the interiors and kind of what the photos look like. We are charging so much more on the top properties versus the lower ones. I think last year it came out to about $45,000 more that like the top designed properties grossed over the lower ones. So, you know, it's a lot, you could spend a lot of money, maybe 45,000 on a whole new kitchen to get you up to that level. But to me, it seems worth it because if you're making that back in just one year, um, you know, it, it clearly just goes to show that like having everything the same, like I said, location, layout, number of bedrooms, bathrooms, occupancy, all of that, really the design is what seems to set it apart. There's also things too, like right now being pet friendly is a really popular option. Having a desk or something, people are traveling for longer stays and want to work from home. So if you can kind of cater to that, um, you know, allow people to bring their pets if you're open to it, that, that seems like something that guests are also willing to pay more. Okay. Awesome. And what about like things like the cancellation policy? Did you find that that plays into potentially any bookings or occupancy? Yeah. So I will tell you, I use the strict cancellation policy on all my properties for anyone unfamiliar Airbnb. I don't know how Verbo is um, or booking.com probably pretty similar, but Airbnb allows you to choose from three different cancellation policies. The flexible one allows you to cancel 24 hours before and get a full refund. I believe moderate, you can cancel five days before to get a full refund. And with the strict policy, you can only cancel within 48 hours of making the booking, and then you are no longer eligible for a full refund. And it's this is one area where I think the language on Airbnb is a little bit misleading because as you are setting up your profile, it when it comes time to choose the cancellation policy, there's always a little pop-up that says um, something like, hosts who use the flexible policy tend to get more bookings. Mm-hmm. I have found that to be pretty misleading in my own experience when I use the flexible policy, it seemed like I was getting more bookings. Like my phone had more notifications of people booking, but so many of them would drop off just one or two days before the check-in date, leaving me having to scramble and drop rates drastically to try and get a last minute booking. Ever since I switched, I now have the strict policy for all of my properties and I'm so happy with it. It does seem in theory, like I'm getting less bookings because I just don't hear the notification as often, but I just almost never get cancellations. I think in the last year, even with different variants and lockdowns and stuff, I think I got two, maybe three cancellations across eight properties. So it's pretty rare that people cancel. I think that it just helps you attract more serious guests that fully intend on staying in your place. And truly my occupancy is the same as before when I did have the flexible policy. Um, It's just that now I think I'm making more money because we don't have to suddenly go in and drop those rates last minute. So I would encourage anybody who is putting their place on Airbnb, ignore the blurbs that Airbnb keeps feeding you to push you for flexible policy. It's a little bit misleading. I would go for the moderate or the strict policy. Okay. That that is great insight. Thanks for sharing. And you talked a little bit about the price and the price drops, and and maybe you can give us some insight on on that and, and maybe like just a you know, maybe a setup that you found has worked well for, I mean, in, in your case, you know, your, your properties, you know, how are you pricing it? Where are you getting the pricing information from? Are you doing any monthly discounts or discounts, you know, within a few days out that are kind of, you know, closer to the booking date? Maybe just if you yeah. want to share some of that, because a lot of people are probably wondering, like, how do they even start pricing their rental? 
Yeah. Pricing is one of those topics. I could probably do like a full mm -hmm. one hour seminar just on that. And that would still be just scratching the surface. And unfortunately, there's just no one size fits all policy for your pricing. Again, even my example where I have eight properties, same complex, same layout, same everything, just in terms of the design and the reviews that they have, we're charging drastically different rates across those. So it's very hard to pinpoint pricing. Um, I will tell you what we do is I do use pricing algorithms, but just kind of as like a loose template, because what I have found is that the pricing, all the pricing algorithms out there, I've tried a number of them. It seems like they try to kind of get you to their goal is just to get you booked in the end. Yes, they do make more money because they take a commission off your rates. So they are slightly incentivized to get you the highest rate possible, but all the pricing algorithms on the market I know of only take a 1% commission. So if you think about it, you know, if they get your place booked for $200, there's not really an incentive for the pricing algorithm to get you booked at 300. They're only going to make $1 more off that, but you lose a potential right. $99. So I think that they can be a very good tool just to help sort of gauge and see when you like zoom out bird's eye view of your calendar. Okay. It looks like they are targeting some peak dates here, some peak season here, some peak weekends here. It can be helpful for that. But again, I think if you really want to get your, get your revenue up, you have to kind of take the, take the burden of pricing upon yourself, keep track of local events in your area. You know, anytime that there's a three-day weekend or something, I will go in and I will manipulate my calendar to only allow three night bookings for that weekend so that I'm not losing a peak night. So that's even a strategy outside of pricing, but kind of just making sure that your calendar is optimized to get those bigger chunked bookings. So yeah, I, I think pricing algorithms can be a really good tool, but again, they just, in my experience to really get the most out of your pricing and your nightly rates, you want to do a little bit more hands-on afterwards and just review them against any events that you know are coming into town or anything like that. Yeah, absolutely. Great, great information. And you know, especially like if, if there's like a big event, right? Like, so I think yeah. like the summer games coming. So I made sure that like the August dates are a little bit more expensive as an example. And kind of, you know, that's, that's still out of it, but let's just say, for example, you know, where the beginning of the month, you know, what is it like, do you give yourself like certain like measures or, or criteria that you want to have like a certain number of days booked going into the month? Like, how are you analyzing that to say, are you on track? Are you behind? Do you need to switch your strategy at all? Yeah. So it depends month to month. My market is very seasonal and probably most tourist locations that your audience would be considering investing in, most of them are pretty seasonal. It's pretty rare to find something that's just going to be the same occupancy 12 months out of the year. So for me personally, winter, you know, in a ski resort town is our busiest time. I pretty much try to be 95% to 100% occupied between uh, like mid-December, like the start of Christmas through March 31st. Um, after that, we see a huge dip. April is usually a pretty slow month for us and stays that way through um, end of May, kind of when people are going on summer. And then in the US, we have Memorial Day. So we've got a three-day weekend at the end of May. Um, so usually for those like two slow months, April through end of May, I personally am happy with 50% occupancy. Um, but in my area, I will look too at statistics there. And usually in my area, we are... Um, April and May, I will see our 
booked about like 27%, um, which is really just doing weekends only, um, Fridays and Saturdays. So I'm, I'm happy with 50%, but if there was like a really off year where we only got like 35 or 40, I would still take that and be happy with it, just knowing that we're still at least <laughs> better than the competition. So again, it's hard to tell because every area is gonna be so seasonally different. Um, overall, I think a good goal to shoot for is out of the 365 days of the year, if you can be at least 85% occupied. Um, yeah, just, just cause it's hard to tell, you know, some months are going to be lower, some will be higher. So 85 for the whole year, I think is a good goal. And you also brought up a good point, right? The seasonality, cause your seasonality is going to be different than a cottage on the water on the lake seasonality. Yeah. And so, you know, when I look at like for, for mine, for example, I think from like May 2-4 to Labor Day, that's where it's, you know, your prices could be as high as you want and there's still going to be demand and, you know, the occupancy is pretty much full. And then you're going into, you know, February, March break might, might be a little bit different, but, you know, then we're looking at like 25%. So it's yeah. interesting to see the different properties and what their seasonality is. And I think that's really important for somebody listening to this because like, like you said, most properties are, are fairly seasonal. I mean, I have one that's in, in the suburbs and we get it rented from like people that are doing renos or in between houses okay. and that's yeah. as seasonal. So I think there's, there's a difference that we have to look at is like, Hey, these properties in the suburbs depends who your client base is. But if you're, if you're offering this to tourists or people that are on vacation, then the seasonality piece is going to be a huge one to consider um, because it's not like your, your, your big months in, in this case for cottages here in Ontario uh, you're like making your, your big money in July and August. You miss those two months. Yeah. You're, you know, taking a lot less for the rest of the year. Any, any insights that you can share on, you know, how somebody can figure out what their season, like the, their high, medium, low season types of things are? Yeah. So for one, you could always check out um, a website like AirDNA, you know, something like that. Um, for anyone who hasn't heard, AirDNA is basically they aggregate a bunch of data and analytics from Airbnb. So you can see a lot on there in terms of, you know, what which months book the best and kind of what that's about. I would say, though, overall, a good kind of a good way to look at it is if you can um pull up, like if there's a city that you're interested in or something, just go onto their local city website and pull up like the calendar of events and stuff there. You'll see very quickly if, you know, in my case where winter is the best for us, you'll see the whole calendar, this town puts on so many things. We've got like Santa's village and, you know, when the day, the day that the resorts open and everything and all sorts of events going through winter. And then in April and May, there's almost nothing going on in town. So you can kind of see from that too, without having to pay for extra data and analytics. Um, usually though, too, I, I think most people kind of will if there's an area you're considering, it's probably because you have some experience traveling there or you've heard something about there and just having some like insight, like again, join a Facebook group or something and you'll see when people are saying like, okay, winter's coming, like it's time to ramp up for peak season. But yeah, it, it that's definitely something too to consider is kind of what are your goals with starting a short-term rental. If you are trying to have a lot of very consistent cash flow throughout the whole year, 
I would do the approach that you did with like buying in the suburbs or something. Um, and then it's really just based on, you know, when somebody's renovating or something, it's, it's going to be a lot more consistent. Mm -hmm. But if you're trying to do something where you can really like maximize those peak months and you want to, you know, make the most out of a lot of tourism and you're okay with the shoulder seasons, um, then yeah, consider a tourist town instead and just know that you'll make your money over the course of the year, even though some months might, might be really low. So that's important too, is kind of figure out what your goals are and what you want your cash flow to be before you go invest in a certain area. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, in between the times that it's not rented, well, if you and your family want to go up and enjoy it for yourselves, then it's uh, for sure. a great <laughs> Yeah. And that's always a good time to like schedule, you know, repainting the place if you need to, or if you want to, you know, upgrade the couch, like get, get the new delivery during that time. So even during off months, I, I don't even look at them as a loss of income or anything. Cause we just maximize it. That's when all our deep cleans get done, any repairs, anything like that. And personally, I kind of appreciate like the slower April after it's been boom, 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 back to back to back for four months straight. Um, so yeah, if you can plan out some, you know, renovations or things in advance, get updated photos of your listing during that time. Like you said, use it for your family. Um, you, there's a lot you can still do in that time to make it profitable to your business without um, just sitting there being bummed over the, over the slow season. Yeah, for sure. And you mentioned, you know, replacing couches and like, there's obviously going to be wear and tear. Yeah. Uh, it, you know, it, it's just like a regular rental, but you're now wearing and tearing all the other stuff like that you wouldn't have in a regular rental because it's fully furnished. Are you allocating a percentage of the gross income? Like, you know, when people calculate like the cash flow, for example, it's the income minus all the expenses. You know, for me, I, as an example, I'll probably take like 3%, you know, to say, I mean, this is going to be like the wear and tear fund or the replenishment yeah. fund. Like, you know, do you have anything like that? And I mean, I don't know if you're, it doesn't have to be 3%, but like, how are you calculating that piece? I don't have like an official number. Um, I, I actually think 3% is a pretty good number. Just hearing you spitball that. I think that sounds pretty reasonable. Um, but I don't know me personally. It's like, if, you know, if we get into that slow season and I'm walking the property and I see that a few, it was just a, you know, a season, a heavy season with heavier foot traffic. Like I, I know how important it is to get the amenities like and the quality back up to what's advertised. So if some years I do have to spend a little bit more, I will do it, you know, and just hope that like in the future years, maybe guests were a little bit easier on the property. So yeah, I try, maybe this is like bad advice, but I, I kind of things like that. I don't necessarily like to budget sometimes because at the end of the day, if you've already spent this much getting the property ready, and you know you need to drop another grand even if it's out of the budget if you know that's what's going to carry you through your peak seasons again and still maintain those top reviews i would do it um so so yeah i do think actually just off the top of your head that three percent is probably a pretty accurate number um but yeah i you try you know if if i know that the extra thing is needed i will do it no absolutely and i mean i think that's important because that extra thing could be a complaint from the yeah. next guest if it doesn't get and then you money. might end up refunding for it and you should have just done it in the first place anyway so yeah but it, you know and like you said like you don't want to cheap out because the, the ones that have better decor in your yeah. places are the ones that get significantly more yeah sure. but there are there are going to be downsides obviously from a short-term rental i think the wear and tear piece is, is one of them you know it's a little bit more hands-on to manage and i'm sure there's a few other ones but can you talk about guests and, and you know the wear and tear but above the wear and tear you know if, if you 
you do come across some issues, damages, difficult guests, are you able to share any insights with the audience? Yeah. Well, one thing I will say really quickly is, uh, Yes, it's natural. You are going to have more wear and tear, you know, with so many more guests in your property than if you just had a long-term rental. Uh, However, I will say that a lot of complaints I see from investors that are doing all long terms is things like when somebody moves out, they may have had, gosh, I don't know, food caked onto the cabinets, like for, you know, a year, they might have been smoking in the unit and you've got like smoke spots on the ceiling. They may have been nailing holes and artwork and stuff in the walls. So even though, yes, you do get a lot more foot traffic with short-term rentals, what's nice is that uh, at the most with short-term rentals, you're probably doing like, you know, anywhere between two to seven night stays. So at the most, every seven nights, you have eyes on the property again, restoring it back to your cleaners, bringing it back to look exactly like what the photos look like. So that that is one thing I will say can be, you know, a little bit of a misconception. I think sometimes just putting someone in a property for a year at a time without checking on it um, could actually result in more damage than sort of containing it to every few days you have eyes on the property again. Um, that being said, though, of course, guests do damage things. It happens. It's part of the territory. Um, I am very, uh, you know, if I ever have to file a claim for something, this has never happened, knock on wood, but if somebody like shattered a TV or something, of course I would file a claim for that and and charge them for it. Something like a broken bed frame or whatever you can think of. Um, but things like when people stain, um, if I get stains on like towels or bed sheets, I don't really follow up on that. A lot of that stuff, I just chalk it up to the cost of doing business. So um, that, that's another thing you might want to cushion a little bit of extra money for. Um, in fact, what I recommend our cleaner, we pay her $80 per cleaning. I charge my guests a hundred dollar cleaning fee. So we actually have that $20 cushion on top of every cleaning fee that I will use kind of for those, you know, towels or sheets or just basic things like that, that do get that wear and tear. Yeah. And that's a, that's a great, great tip too. And and so like for mine, my cottages, like it might cost me a hundred dollars to have the cleaners do it. I probably charge 150, 160, but then what I do also is I count for the snow that I've got to hire that company in the winter yeah. to remove yeah. the snow or the grass. And so like it, it will likely even itself out at the end. But yeah, I mean, it's, I think it's a great tip. If, if your cleaner is a hundred dollars, don't charge necessarily just a hundred dollars, yes. build a buffer so that you can have in, in addition to, I mean, in my example, the 3% on, on gross rents that I allocate towards having to replace stuff anyways, um, you know, you're, you're not just covering your costs. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Just build in a little cushion and know that that's, that's going to come with the territory. So have it ready to go and don't, don't cry over it when you have to spend it. Yeah. And Airbnb, like if, if there is like truly abuse, like they do have a good policy with, you know, their million dollar liability insurance and the million dollar refund. And, you know, I just went through something myself where there's a couple that had a fight and they put a bunch of holes in the walls and everything. And they were pretty good. Like three weeks later, they, they paid out and they just need to see the pictures. And I'm sure sure there's some stuff around it that, that some back and forth. But I would say if, if that was a long-term tenant, Going through the board in Ontario, and I don't know how it is, you know, where you are, but it would yeah. be such a long process. And a lot of landlords will just say, forget it, I'll just eat the cost. But because yeah. it's short term, it's a lot easier to deal with Airbnb. And if the guest doesn't want to pay it, Airbnb does help, you know, recoup the cost and, and will pay you. Yeah, it's true. And the biggest complaint I've seen with Airbnb is a lot of hosts saying that 
Um, usually I have seen that Airbnb is pretty fair about paying things out. There are a lot of hosts that will complain that they never do. I, I always wonder if there's another side to that story. Um, cause in my experience, Airbnb has always been really good about paying out. Um, but the big complaint I have seen is that it can take them up to like 14 days of disputing and going back and forth. So that's just another reason to, to build in that, that cushion and have that buffer because you might have to front the cost of an expensive item like a TV or something. But uh, rest assured, I think if you do provide like accurate timestamped photos and have your documentation and your fare and all the correspondence, they are pretty good at paying it out. You might just have to front it for the first couple of weeks. Yeah, and I think in my case, like they needed to see another invoice from another separate contractor. Right, they want a second care. opinion or something. So they you have do. to chase down a little bit, but yeah, they, they are pretty good about it. Yeah, I will say like, I'm like pretty much like 90% satisfied with, with that. I think the only downside that I would say is if it can be repaired, they're going to push you to try to repair it. And then if, yeah. if it's not repairable, they're going to take a percentage of the, like, for example, if it's a counter that's damaged, they're going to take a percentage of the counter. They're not going to allow you to replace the whole slab, but you might have to pay to replace the whole slab, but it's going to be like a percentage. So that's just, you know, the one thing that I'm like, okay, well, you know, like, I don't know about that, but for the yeah. most part, like they were, they were pretty good. Yeah, I had something similar. Well, it wasn't a counter because that's massive, but um, we had somebody once spill like a thing of red wine on a rug and it was the same thing. We we just didn't have the time to like sit there and steam clean it and everything. You know, we have guests checking in like the next day. So I just wanted to go buy a new rug and replace it. And same thing. They were like, well, have you tried getting it out? Have you tried spot treating it? Have you tried getting a carpet cleaner? So yeah, that can be a little, a little frustrating sometimes. But yeah, like you said, I think 90% satisfied with how they pay out. Out, which is pretty good odds considering how many bookings you get from the platform. Yeah. So I guess here's a, here's another question. I think we're going to wrap it up afterwards, but in, in regards to expenses, right? I mean, we talked about these, these types of expenses, but mm -hmm. what other expenses might we consider for a short-term rental that a long-term rental might not have? Like what are some of the things that you would suggest that somebody account for? Sure. So for sure, your cleaning fee is going to be one of them, even though that is a cost that you do pass off to the guest, uh, the way that Airbnb pays out the payments, like if you've ever seen anybody upload a screenshot of their income on Airbnb, it does include the cleaning fee. So make sure that you subtract that out. That's not something that you'll have to deal with if with a long-term rental. Um, so cleaning is a big one. Um, I never really count uh, things like utilities in this because that's the same, you know, anybody who's staying um, long-term in your place would also have utility costs. So and I don't really- In some markets, I think for Ontario, we're able to like charge back the tenant. So that's oh, probably- Oh, interesting. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So maybe in certain markets, you do want to consider utilities. Another cost, of course, would be a management fee. If you are hiring a property manager, that can be- anywhere from 10, 20, 30, even 40% what a management company will charge you. Um, but, you know, there also are management costs associated with the long-term rental, but usually they're higher with the short-term rental. There's a lot more work involved there. You might have to pay. Um, another thing too would kind of be some like uh, urgency rates on things. So if a guest is only there for a couple nights, you know, and let's say that the pool heater isn't working, you probably have to pay a little bit extra to get somebody out and immediately because they check out in two days. Whereas with a long-term tenant, you could say, okay, their first availability is in a week. And hopefully that long-term tenant would be more okay with that because they're there for, 
a decent amount of time. So you might want to bake in as well some times that you might have to pay like an upcharge just to get somebody out there to service it quickly. But yeah, the biggest ones would be cleanings, management, if that's applicable to you. Oh, and of course supplies, right? With a long term, you're not giving them toilet paper or shampoo or conditioner. With a short term rental, it would definitely be expected that you're providing all of that. Yeah, for sure. And then the other just couple things, like, I mean, that's a great list. I would just say like your insurance is probably going to be a lot higher. So like, yeah. you probably want to balance it, see what it would be if it was long-term, see what it is like short-term. You probably want to add the difference on that. Internet, do you, do you provide internet on yours? Yes. Yes, we do. Yeah. Um, and I would recommend, yeah. Um, there are only like a few cases. I have had a lot of hosts ask me if they need internet. The only time I think you don't need to provide it is if you are doing, maybe if your property is like in the middle of the desert or something, and you're intentionally providing like a retreat and it's part of your marketing that you don't have Wi-Fi. Otherwise just suck it up and offer the Wi-Fi. Um, it's, I think actually last year that was the most searched amenity was high-speed Wi-Fi on Airbnb. So you're not even going to show up for like 80% of the market if, if you don't offer it. I mean, I can definitely see that, especially now that everybody, or I should say, I don't know about your market, but like the majority of people here now are working still remotely after the pandemic yeah, and here. likely will continue to do so. So if they can at least work from where they're traveling, where they're visiting, you know, different scenery, I think it's, you know, like for sure above even the hot tub, I think that's just something yeah. that people look for now. Yeah. Um, I do agree. I do have a friend and she's got a few cottages and one of them, they just don't have any reception or internet up there regardless. So she did market it as yeah. like, you know, a retreat where you get away and like you completely disconnect from, <laughs> from yeah. the real yeah. world. It can work, but you just have to make it like very intentionally yeah. part of the experience. Like don't surprise people that they're showing up and there's no Wi-Fi there. Exactly. And then the only other thing, like, I don't know if you do like security cameras or anything like that, but there might be a cost potentially yeah. security. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. If you do want to do a camera, I think a lot of them require like a monthly subscription to you first have to pay to install the camera and get the hardware. And then there might be a monthly subscription involved with like viewing the feed. Same thing. If you put like noise monitors in your place, there are a few that I think are just a one-time cost upfront to install, but others will charge you like $10 a month in order to give you the data back. So yeah, that's another thing too, is, you know, kind of compare those different, you know, pieces of hardware and tech that you're using um, and see if there's any with subscriptions, you might want to avoid those or maybe for your purposes, you like that better, but that's another thing to consider. Yeah. Awesome. Now, you know, I took uh, one of your great courses and it was really insightful on Airbnb. And, and for those that are interested in doing more when it comes to the short-term market, like where, you know, I, I know you're, you're offering courses at different times, but where's the best place for them to reach yeah. Yeah. So everything that I, that I'm doing, I always will either, um, I'll advertise, I'll send it out to my email list, which you can sign up for at my website, which is hostwithnatalie.com. Or I post everything on Instagram as well. That's the only social media where I'm active. And my Instagram is at, I hate this, but underscore, underscore Natalie Palmer. I need to try and convince the whole Natalie Palmer to let me have her username, but right now it's two underscores. 
Um, so yeah, any anything um, I know we talked about by the time this airs, I will have just wrapped up another round of my course, but that's something I'm going to be offering every quarter. So by the time this airs, it might be coming up within the next month or so. So yeah, uh, just find find my website and join my email list or find me on Instagram and anything I'm offering any educational resources, house manual templates or anything like that to help you get the most out of hosting will always be promoted there. Very cool. Maybe you should go by like investor Natalie Palmer or Natalie yeah. Palmer, like STR, like short-term rental. <laughs> I hate the two underscores, but I was like, oh, it's so clean. It's just my full name, but I, I'm ready to drop it. So I got to come up with something new. <laughs> Somebody took mine. So I had to go investor Sarah Larby. <laughs> well, there you go. That's good. <laughs> awesome. So Natalie, we're going to go into our lightning rounds. So I'm going to ask you five questions. You're going to give me quickly the first answer that comes to mind. Are you ready to play? Yes, let's do it. This week's lightning round is brought to you by Complete Properties. If you need a great property manager to help you in the Niagara, Hamilton, and Burlington markets, reach out to Margaret Cameron at 905-920-7886. She can also be reached at margaret at completepminc.com via email or the website completepropertiesinc.com. All right, so question number one, what is your favorite real estate investing book? Oh, I have to confess, I am not a reader. I do like audiobooks, podcasts, and YouTube. But my favorite YouTube channel, I'll give you that one, is Rob Bilt. I don't know if you've heard of him, but I feel like I've learned so much from his channel. So Rob Bilt's YouTube channel, he goes a lot into short-term rental investing. All right, I'll have to check that out. Number two, this doesn't have to be real estate specific, but I don't know if you are a podcast listener. Do you have a favorite podcast? I do. I'm going to get a little political, but I love the Megan Kelly show. She is the best interviewer. I love her conversations. Okay. Number three, what do you do for fun aside from anything Airbnb or real estate related? Oh, I love like DIYs, anything like fixing up stuff around the house or flipping furniture, um, sanding things, staining things, anything like that. All right. Very cool. You should do some videos on that. <laughs> you know I should. Question number four, if you lost all of your money, all your properties, all your assets tomorrow, how would you start again? Oh, I would start by co-hosting. Like I said at the beginning, I got, you know, really lucky that my, my parents were kind of like the first investors that got me to start managing Airbnbs. And then from there, I started doing it for other owners. I would have just, if I was starting over, I would just jumpstart to hosting for other owners because that's such a quick way to take a commission and build up your personal capital and then be able to start investing in your own properties from there. All right. Great, great insight. And if last question, number five, if somebody has $50,000 and they want to get started, how would you recommend they spend that money? I would say buy a property um, and, you know, try to get the lowest down payment you can so that you have a lot to put into the design because that, that really is going to help set you apart so much with the rates that you can earn. Um, and then refinance from there and keep going. Amazing. Natalie, thank you for playing the lightning round. Thank you for being on the podcast as well. It was a pleasure having you on. Thank you. Hey guys, before you go, I wanted to ask you a question. What's stopping you from starting or growing your own real estate investment portfolio? I know for me, before I started, I had plenty of reasons and at the time they all seemed very valid. But as I started my journey, these reasons slowly fell away and eventually only one reason remained. 
What was actually stopping me was having a proven, actionable, repeatable system. I didn't have that. And the way that was going to change was by investing in myself, learning, listening, and looking for ways that worked. And also, most importantly, discovering what didn't and not making those mistakes again. Fast forward to today, I now have a proven, repeatable series of action steps that has enabled me to build my seven-figure portfolio consisting of multiple homes, and I'm able to manage that in two to three hours a month. Is that something that you would want? Well, I've actually taken all the knowledge I've accumulated and put that into a comprehensive step-by-step online program. It's called Rise, and it's a program that will help you from where you are now to where you want to be faster and with less of the headaches that I had. So it consists of all the templates and the resources that I use, plus over 40 instructional videos that you get lifetime access to for just a small one-time investment. And, you know, my recommendation is to make the time now to invest in yourself and grow your portfolio to seven figures so that you can bring your retirement dreams closer. If you want some more information about Rise, just go to sarahlarby.com forward slash R-I-S-E to access more details and book your spot. Thanks so much for listening to Where Should I Invest with your host, Sarah Larvey. Make sure to listen in next time. We'll catch you on the next episode of Where Should I Invest.